Well, Lord God, we just thank you so much for how you oversee the distribution of your word. I mean, you've preserved your word, scripture for us throughout all these centuries to bless your church, to teach us the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, and to um, cause us to grow and to please you with our lives. We uh, pray for Gideon's International. We pray for these two men that are here with us this morning as well. We thank you that uh, they also partner with so many churches around the world to not just distribute the Bibles, but then to see people uh, saved and to see their lives completely changed around. We praise you that through them, you have distributed over 2 billion Bibles in hundreds of countries and many languages. And we just praise you for that. I pray for my friend George that you would uh, continue to use him, even in his own personal ministry through Gideon's, that he would get to see the joy himself of seeing people come to faith in Christ. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Lord, we look over these blessings that your word declares as promises to us, if we spend time in your word, that you would do this work in those who receive, who pick up what seems to be a happenstance Bible and read it, that you would do these things in them. We pray even for us this morning today that you would accomplish these purposes as we look into your word together, that you would make us wise, that you would cause us to rejoice, that you would open up our eyes to see new things, that you would purify us, that you would fulfill our desires and cause us to taste the sweetness of your word. We pray that you would warn us, and we pray that you would reward us. And we pray all these things this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Well, we're going to continue our study in the gospel according to Luke, so you can turn in your Bibles there. It's also the passage is printed for you in your worship folder. But, you know, we just finished our Easter, oh yes, sorry, kids, please be dismissed for Children's Church. I even wrote it in very large letters and I missed it. So, but yes, enjoy your class. So... We had Easter season, but a, a few weeks before that, we were in the Gospel of Luke, and, and we started in chapter 10 on this mission trip that the disciples were put on by Jesus. And we learned that appointment to discipleship, being appointed to be a disciple of Jesus, is also an appointment to be a missionary, to be on mission with Jesus, in other words. And we learned that mission can be very successful at times, and it can also be very disappointing at times. And we also should definitely expect a great harvest because Jesus promised us that. And we need to keep that harvest mindset. We learned that, but we also learned that we should be prepared to deal with rejection with a holy dignity. So listen to, since we're in the middle of the story, let's, let's begin at the beginning and let me just read it to you. So starting in Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves the wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is put before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Well, today, we're going to hear about the results of this mission trip that these disciples went on and find out what really happened. Now, when we do evangelism, there's a a lot of things we need to keep in mind, and, and one theological truth that is illustrated in our passage today, and I'll point it out as we get to it, is what we call the general call of God and the special call of God. And so I'm just going to give you a brief review of that. More might be said, of course, but the point is, is that we as disciples of Jesus, we go out and we preach the gospel indiscriminately. And through preaching of that gospel to people, telling them about it, discussing with it, how whatever method we're using, a general call is going out to people to listen to the word of God and believe it and put their faith in Christ. But then there's also God in his in internal call, a special call, at just the right time, he issues in the hearts of his chosen ones. And he reveals to them the glory of Jesus Christ, and then they respond by repenting of their sin and putting their faith in our Lord Jesus. And God brings great glory to himself as the one who saves and brings great joy into the hearts of these people who now have received salvation. You know, salvation is God's to grant, and if we want to measure evangelistic success in terms of conversions, we have to look at God's work and give him entirely all of the praise for converting souls. But if we look at our ministry and what we do and how we want to measure a success, we don't measure it by conversion because none of us can do that in another person's soul, but we measure it in terms of faithfulness to proclaim the gospel to people clearly and abundantly. And we know this truth, but it's often a struggle for us to consistently remind ourselves of this, that we are to invite everyone to Christ and knowing that God in his time and in his way will bring his people to himself. Well, we're going to be looking at the next part, starting in verse 17 and rejoicing over the work God has done through his 72 disciples. So the 72 accomplished God's purpose. It was a total success, this mission trip that they were on for maybe a few weeks. And through Luke's recording of this, 
What's put upon us this morning, God's burden in this text for us, is to count it a privilege and a joy to be on mission with him. And that when we sense that privilege and we experience that joy, it has this way of just re-inspiring us to the same thing. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Probably you have. But it sort of builds on itself. And, uh, and, you, and you realize that as you are out there sharing with people, it just it gets more exciting. And you wish you could do this more and more often. And, you know, if, if you haven't experienced that, I would really encourage you to get involved with the mission of Jesus and see what God does even in your own heart. And in Luke 10, Jesus is going to give us some perspective on the results of their mission. He's going to give praise to his father. He's going to bless his disciples. And through his disciples on this trip, there are two lessons that we'll learn. In verses 17 to 20, is that Satan is being defeated repeatedly. And then in verses 21 to 24, that God is revealing his salvation to many. So today we observe again the 72 returning from their short-term mission trip and giving a report, and the Lord Jesus conducts a debriefing of them and provides some commentary. And we, as the blessed readers of Scripture, are going to learn a whole lot from this situation. So let's, let's dig into the text together this morning. And so again, the first thing we learn is that by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, that... Satan is being repeatedly defeated. Now, it's important to realize, you know, when I talk about preaching here this morning, that's not just like what I'm doing up here. It's it's when you're presenting the gospel to people. It could be in a conversation one-on-one with someone. It could be in small groups. It could be in large groups. There's so many ways that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. So think about yourself. I think it's most interesting. We'll read this as we go along, but it begins like this. The 72 returned with joy. They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And the first thing to notice is that they returned in joy. And that's what happens to us when we do this and and we go out and share the gospel with people. More joy in our life. If you want more joy in your Christian life, it really is this simple sometimes. It's just to tell people about what you've discovered and how Jesus has saved you. And this joy comes up in your own soul as you tell others about what you've found. This is the normal Christian life. Now, apparently, the mission had gone really well, according to what Jesus told them to do back in in verse 9, where he said, Heal those in the city who are sick. Say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. And the 72 have been, and and they're likely busy, so they're on their way, first of all. They're on their way to Jesus to give this report. Now, remember, they went out two by twos. They went to different villages, different towns. Most likely, they were telling one another about all the things that they've seen, sharing their war stories, if you will, of what it's been like being on mission with Jesus. And surely, there are so many more stories than what's recorded even here for us. But it was successful all, all around. They were able to perform works of power in Jesus' name. They were able to see that Jesus' strategy, as he gave them a strategy on how to do it, worked, and that God granted salvation. Now, the sole commentary that they give, or the sole mention thing that they mention, is that even demons were subject to them in Jesus' names. Now, it might be, as you read this, they were surprised at what they're reporting. It's like, unbelievable, Jesus, what happened out there? And they were surprised. It could be that this statement is here because... That was their focus, what they were thinking about as they wanted to talk to Jesus. Or maybe it's just an example of the many things that took place on the mission that they wanted to highlight. 
Or maybe it's because it's highlighted for us because of what Jesus said in response to that. And that that's been such a blessing to Luke and to the church. They called Jesus Lord because they truly experienced and saw for themselves the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And one of the best places to experience and see the Lordship of Jesus Christ is in out there doing mission. Well, they report their amazement that the demons are subject, and notice that they are very careful to say, it seems, that it was in the name, they were subject to demons in the name of Jesus. They have the right perspective here, you see, because it's Jesus' authority and Jesus' glory that's being emphasized. It's not theirs. The demons weren't subject to them. They were only subject to them in Jesus' name. And it wasn't that they were out pronouncing some kind of an incantation that they could somehow subdue demons, right? We actually have an example of that in Acts chapter 19 and the sons of Sceva. It didn't work out too well for them. So you can look at that one on your own, Acts 19. But they would have seen subjugation of the demons coming out in a lot of ways. You know, demons coming out of people they were possessed by them, uh, maybe them ending forms of oppression in cities. Um, the demons were less effective, perhaps, in influencing people to sin or propagating all kinds of falsity in those villages. But the bottom line is, is that they saw a lot of people come to faith in Christ. That was the point of the mission, to go out there and see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so next we get the analysis from Jesus on this mission trip. He says, starting in verse 18, after they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, he says, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall harm you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the comment of our Lord Jesus right away is that he agrees wholeheartedly with his disciples. Um, their excitement and their excess, and he says to them, yes, exactly, while you were out there proclaiming my name, I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, he's basically saying, awesome job, men. You did a great job on that mission trip. It's a remark on the defeat of Satan and what they were doing. The Lord Jesus, as the Son of God, the eternal Son, of course, saw the original fall of Satan and being cast out of heaven eons ago. And there's been a long series of events that have taken place since then and theological realities that have come to fruition. The creation of man, the fall of mankind, the redemptive work, of course, of God, even in the Old Covenant for thousands of years. And Satan was active in this world. And now the coming of the Son of God into this world to bring about redemption for countless people. The Lord Jesus now is greatly rejoicing that Satan is being so powerfully defeated and repeatedly, like in every single city they went to, in every single town, every single village, every single person that they talked to, Jesus is saying, yeah, I saw him fall. The forces of evil are shaking and they're being routed and it's a reminder to them, those demons, that their eternal doom is coming. Now, the exorcisms performed and, and the faith in the gospel preached are proof of the binding of the evil one and the plundering of his house. These are quotations from scripture. The house meaning this world that's trapped in sin. Now, we're soon going to find in Luke these words of Jesus, starting in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own household, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes the plunder. Jesus' ministry, especially his death and resurrection, are the great work of God that signaled that the end times have come near. In 1 John, the Apostle John writes in chapter 3, verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And then the working of the church continues in the plundering of that house until Jesus himself returns. And then what will come true is Revelation 20, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what's coming. And of course, my favorite simple statement comes from Romans 16, 20. Romans 16, 20. And it says, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Jesus makes it clear that he gave his disciples great authority on this trip and really for the whole mission that they would be on. They would trample on snakes and scorpions. This is a reference to Satan and his demons. I mean, you see it right in verse 20 uh, where he explains what it is. Nevertheless, don't rejoice that spirits are subject to you. That's what he's talking about. And it takes us back to the first salvation promise in Scripture in Genesis 3.15 where it says, I will put enmity between you, speaking of the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's a reference also to the Exodus and God's working powerfully there and being with his people and guiding them. In Deuteronomy 8.15 it says, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. It's an encouragement building upon also the imagery of Psalm 91. Psalm 91, 13, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpents you will trample down. You see, snakes and scorpions in this passage in Luke are symbols for all the powers of the enemy. Nothing can really harm his disciples in any real ultimate sense. That's the perspective of Jesus. Do we really believe it? Enough to take part in this new sport of demon trampling that Jesus introduced? And to go out there and to talk to people about Jesus Christ and salvation and see them freed from bondage to sin and from the guilt and shame and the power of the evil one, it doesn't mean there aren't going to be difficulties and discouragements and sufferings. Those have already been discussed. And that's why the Apostle Paul can be so bold in his letters and say things like this in Ephesians 6.10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. People aren't our enemies. We want them saved. Paul continues, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, it's a very important one because this explains exactly what it means to participate in this spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and following. For though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying, and this is what's happening, see, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And there are numerous other passages virtually in every single letter the Apostle Paul wrote about the power of the gospel when we speak it to people. And then the Lord Jesus further emphasizes that the joy in this power over demons is not really the ultimate of joys in verse 20, where he says there, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, he's not saying that they shouldn't be joyful in these spiritual victories of power. Don't miss this. That's a very common misinterpretation and application of this because we already saw Jesus rejoicing in the fact that they had the power over the evil ones just like he sent them out to do. But he's using this language. It's a, it's a Semitic form of comparison. He's not rebuking them. It's a clarification of perspective of getting the emphasis right, and where do you put that emphasis? And, and what he's saying is that true foundational joy is not in the power, but in the security of one's own salvation. What really makes us joyful, what really makes us fearless out there, is not just sort of hoping that God's power is going to show up, but it's in the security of belonging, as one scholar put it, belonging to the heavenly census, belonging in heaven, a citizen of heaven, Security and salvation and the assurance that goes along with that, that's far more important than the acts of power, and the emphasis really needs to remain there. It's the security that's going to empower us and give us constant joy, inspire us to continue. But again, by all means, take great joy in the power that you see God put on display at times. Satan's being defeated repeatedly, and that's something to glory in. Gospel ministry. Missions should be characterized by going on the offensive against the evil one. We shouldn't be playing cautiously and in a defensive posture. We should go on the attack with the gospel, with the authority in Jesus' name, and be fearless because we have the advantage. We're crushing the forces of evil, part of his instrument in getting it done. And Jesus is looking on from heaven where he is now and rejoicing and we're going to see more of Jesus' joy as we read along in this text, but for now, just keep pursuing the assurance of your salvation. Because the stronger and more assured you are that you're saved for eternity, that you belong to Jesus Christ, you're going to be bold and confident as you talk to people, as you interact with people, and you're going to take the opportunities that God puts in front of you. You see, because it's the joy that we experience in doing the mission that actually just continually feeds on itself in our souls, and we're inspired to continue. So by preaching the gospel, first of all, we learn that Satan is being defeated repeatedly. The second thing we learn is that God is revealing his salvation to many, saving them. That's really Satan's real defeat, isn't it? Taking people away from him, plundering his house, and distributing it. So Jesus then praises the Father for how the mission has unfolded in verses 21 to 22. And then finally, in verses 23 to 24, Jesus pronounces the disciples blessed because they live 
in the best time in the history of redemption. And so we read then in verses 21 to 22, after Jesus says, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, it says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and, re- understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, for no one knows the Son except no one no one who knows the Son is except from the Father, or who the Father is except from the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus now praises his Father for what took place on this mission trip. He's elated in the Holy Spirit. And the promise that it has for the future. He takes special joy in in this time, in the age of the history of redemption, over all the previous ages. Because it's in this time frame that he would finally conquer sin and accomplish redemption and see the reach of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And so his joy is not just right here in verses 21 to 22, but it continues all the way through as we'll get to 23 and 24. But he praises the Father, and isn't this interesting, for keeping hidden and for giving understanding of his salvation. It's a general theological truth. It's all over Scripture. But Jesus means, especially here, focusing on this particular mission, that's what happened to you guys when you were out there, he's saying to them, is that you saw this actually take place. Where where the Father would hide things from some and reveal it to other, and amazingly, Jesus praises the Father for doing this. And every time we share the gospel, these types of things are happening. And he delights in the Father's ways. Can we? Can we take delight in both God hiding himself from people as well as revealing himself to people? You know, it's all about aligning our pleasures with God's pleasures. It pleased him to do it this way. So God the Father, the Lord of creation, is praised by Jesus for keeping hidden his plans of salvation and how they would include him as the eternal son, who is Jesus the Messiah, hidden his works, his teaching, all these things, and he prevents people, some people, from understanding. It's a divine mystery who it is, but, of course, as we read through the Gospels, we see some people who just can't seem to grasp truth and the significance. And so often, in the Gospel of Luke, we've already learned that it's those who deem themselves wise in the things of God don't get anything. They don't get any understanding. They're left to their own seemingly wonderful religious ideas that is really just a bunch of foolishness. Have you ever seen that? God just sort of pass over and not give people understanding when you share with them. But then Jesus also praises his Father for revealing to some and to many others. He gives insight And we've seen examples of that in the Gospel of Luke so far, giving insight to people that are receptive to his revelation, knowing that they're actually ignorant of God, they want to learn. Who is this God? Those that are dependent and teachable. For example, we read in the book of Acts about a woman named Lydia, and it says, the text says, God opened her heart to believe. You've probably seen this as well, too, because it's not just making an intellectual decision. That's not what it means to follow Jesus Christ. It means to give over your whole life. And God has to open the heart. And when he opens the heart, 
Sometimes you can see the heart in people's eyes. It comes out, and you can see that God has granted salvation to someone. And the emphasis, of course, here is not on the people, that somehow they can move God. But it's on God who is the sovereign, who decides to grant revelation and how he wants to do it. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, just listen as I read it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we get an explanation of this a little bit further, starting in verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever, I will set it aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom has not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of this world, and the despised God has chosen, things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus says in this passage that all things have been given to him from the Father, and he's the eternal Son, who has now become incarnate and taken on humanity. Often, when Jesus says these things, he's referring to all power and authority. Many passages in the Gospel of John attest to this, but in this context, the emphasis is on the knowledge of God. Jesus has true knowledge of God, in that sense, being the eternal Son of God, of course, who dispenses from the Father revelation into people's hearts that they might know him and know who God is. He's the sole mediator to the Father, as he himself said. There's no other way to God. There's no other way to know God except through Jesus Christ. And the very first opening chapter in the Gospel according to John emphasizes this fact, that Jesus is the one who gives revelation. The final point is that the Son of God gives knowledge to whomever he wants to, and he doesn't give it to everyone. He gave it to his disciples and everyone who heard them on this tour generally, a general sense, a general offer, but more so he gave it specifically to his disciples and many of their hearers in a true, fully saving, inward sense. This takes us back to what we talked about at the beginning of this morning, this general call of God that goes out with the gospel but that special internal call that God only gives to those he's chosen. 
And it's still the same today. And finally, Jesus pronounces a blessing on his disciples that they live in the best time you could possibly think of living in. When he says in verses 23 and 24, then turning to the disciples, he said to them privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and didn't see it. And to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. So now he focuses his comments on his disciples and how blessed they are. Pronounces a beatitude, if you will, upon them because of what they get to see and what they get to hear. Likely this is something Jesus would say often. But they've heard and seen so much traveling around with Jesus for this year and a half, two years or so, in his actions and in his words. They've also seen so much in their own ministry that they've been doing in his name, and especially this most recent one that they just returned from. And they've seen so much in the sense that they've, they've understood the kingdom, and they've understood where they stand in the history of the unfolding of redemption. They're starting to put all those pieces together. And realizing how blessed they really are because, as Jesus said, you know, there are many prophets in the Old Testament. Speaking prophets, writing prophets. There are many kings in the Old Testament who wished for this day, this day when Jesus would be here, the Messiah would be here. And, and they, they longed to see this day that the disciples got to see. For example, listen for the privilege that they have. In John 8, 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And Jesus is talking about two things at once. He's talking about how in Abraham's actual day, he looked forward to that time and to see the day of the Messiah. But he's also talking about, as you look in context, as he's debating people, he sees from heaven the coming of the Son of Man into this world and to accomplish redemption, and Abraham is rejoicing. And that's what gets those religious leaders so upset. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, it says, all of these died in faith, talking about the patriarchs, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, in Hebrews 11, you get this litany of the faithful, and you read about the patriarchs and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, etc., and how they welcomed from a distance. They only saw the promises in promised form. And their joy, as Hebrews 11 wraps up at the end, their joy is only made complete at this point in the history of redemption and going forward because now we're complete as one people. In Acts chapter 2, verse 30, it says, and so because David was a prophet, not only was he a king, but he was also a prophet, Acts 2.30, and so because David was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he is neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up to which we are all witnesses. And then, of course, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and following. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
that God is moving them to write scripture, and they're trying to understand exactly what it's pointing to. It was revealed to them, actually, that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. See, Jesus' disciples were truly blessed. They received a great blessing to be able to live at the time of the Messiah, the time of the kingdom's inauguration. Those before them only could see it by faith without any real concrete examples that pointed so closely and directly and finally to Jesus Christ. But they got to see it with their own eyes. And then the church, after the age of the apostles, ourselves, we get to see even far more things because we have the full historical record of Scripture, the Bible, the Holy Word of God, and it gives us the fullness of revelation. It speaks to us clearly and openly about the cross of Jesus Christ and how that would be the payment for our sin. It speaks to us about the resurrection of Jesus and his glories in heaven, and we get to read about the mission, the worldwide mission of Jesus Christ starting to be fulfilled even in the pages of Scripture. Luke is implying even more so that you know, we live at the time now of the kingdom's rapid advance as the gospel goes around the world, we live at the time when the Messiah's plans are fully being fulfilled and people, groups from all over the world are coming to faith and the power of the Holy Spirit is active in the world. This has been the longing too of the righteous ones throughout the ages to what the prophets have testified. You can read Isaiah, there's a lot in there. And we, the church today, really are the envy of those saints of ages past, even of those disciples at Jesus' time that we live in the age in which we live, God is revealing his salvation to many, and that's something to glory in. And we see emphasized here in this section three things that happened on that mission trip that Jesus sent the 72 on, and that would continue to characterize the whole age of mission. The first thing that's emphasized pretty strongly is the sovereignty of God in it all. God is sovereign in his mission, and he imparts revelation unto salvation. We also see emphasized the privilege that disciples have to participate, and God's using us through us in our lives and our words to bring his revelation to people. And third, the praise is actually accumulating to the Father and the Son for all the results of the mission, and we give glory to him. How blessed we are to live in this time, this age of salvation and then to be given a role, a job to do, to be propagating this gospel. And as we sense that we have a privilege, that's going to inspire us to continue in the mission as well. Not only is it the joy that builds upon itself, but the sense that we've been privileged by God, given revelation, given salvation, given this mission that we can participate in, and as we do it, we just get more and more thrilled to be a part of it. Well, we know that through us as disciples doing mission, the kingdom is advancing. Satan is being defeated repeatedly. Now, even now as you share. And God is revealing salvation to people as you share with them. We live in the age of fulfillment, the age of the Messiah, the age of the gospel, the age of the kingdom, the age of the spirit, the age of the mission. That's when we live all of these things. There's no greater age to live in than the one we live in at this point in the history of redemption. 
God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, he's accomplishing his desires for the success of his gospel through us as church. In the 72, they were, they were filled with joy after their mission, and so was Jesus. And we too should take joy in their particular mission and enjoy this passage of scripture and extract the joy for ourselves, even more of it. In fact, that's something you can do at home. There's at least a couple days worth of devotions here to go back through this passage. See if you can reread it to the point that you actually feel the joy of the text, that you feel the joy of the disciples, that you feel the joy of Jesus. That's what Luke wants us to feel. And count yourself blessed that you've been given revelation unto salvation, that God has opened, the, opened your heart, opened your mind to receive it. And really think over this and pray through this. And count yourself blessed to be on mission with God and to be a part of his revealing of the gospel to the peoples. It's part of being a disciple of Jesus. And really think through that and pray through that and understand what it is that we're here for to do. We really are secure. You know, our names are written in the book, the Lamb's Book of Life. And we have authority from the Jesus to go out and proclaim the gospel, to conquer the schemes of Satan and his demons. We've been blessed beyond all previous generations in the church to witness God's workings in new ways. So may we more deeply sense this privilege and experience this joy and let it inspire us to continue on missions. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we read this passage of scripture and we can sense the joy that you had in sending out the 72 and their report back and the joy that you had in their joy that they had in it and that they have in you and in the gospel. And we want more of that joy for ourselves and to be able to sense the privilege of being sent by you into this world in all the places you send us, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our families, our friends, even just the most unusual circumstances that you put us in, we have opportunities to share. And we do pray, I pray for us, Lord, as a church, that we would sense this privilege all the more of being your disciple and the joy of that. And not only what it's done for our own lives, but how it is that uh, you get glory out of our lives as we testify to you. And we pray all these things, Jesus, for your greater glory in your church. Amen.